Today's scripture comes from 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8, 1 to 9. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own, co- own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of the God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Please join me in prayer. And Father, right now we ask that you would come to us now as you said you would, that you would speak to your people through the means of grace known as the preaching of your word. Father, we are so grateful for this community that you have given to us. Father, as we consider the saints scattered all over the world, how they are prevented, how they are persecuted, how they are prohibited in freely worshiping you freely, fully. Lord, we are so grateful for the fact that we can have this place, we could have this time, we could have this moment without any fear of retribution, without any fear of persecution to come before you and to sit at your feet and to be in fellowship with one another. Lord, how could we ever dread coming to this place when saints across this world would die to have just a moment like this to where they can gather with their brothers and sisters to sing your praises, to confess their faith, and to sit at your feet to hear your word. Father, help us to never take for granted this wonderful community that you have granted us with, a community that we pray would strengthen us, encourage us, empower us to be the men and women that we so desire to be and the men and women that you call us to be in this world that desperately needs the sons and daughters of God to manifest themselves in a broken world like this. Father, we ask now that as we have laid our burdens at your feet, banish whatever distracting thoughts that may creep into our minds that may pervert our hearts so that instead we could be fully attentive and fully present as you speak to us today. Speak mightily into our hearts, renew our minds, and strengthen our hearts in greater faithfulness and obedience to you. And Father, would you ask, we do ask that you would now bless this message in spite of the messenger who brings it, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys, so we're at the tail end of this sermon series that we started a few months ago entitled METS, Members Equipped to Serve. And the purpose of this series was to look at the crucial ministries that God calls every Christian to be a minister of God. You see, the Bible tells us that every Christian, not just pastors like myself or Pastor James, every Christian is called to do five ministries throughout their life, okay? First, we said that the first primal ministry or first priority ministry is our personal ministry to God. Then we talked about, second, secondly, our ministry to our family. 
in the ministry of marriage, in the ministry of parenting. Then we talked about our ministry to the local body, the local church, where we use the spiritual gifts that God has used us for the flourishing and building up the body as we did through, as we just recited in the confession of faith. Then for the few weeks, we've looked at the fourth category of ministry, which is our ministry to the world through our work, through our occupation. Well, today and next week, we're going to talk about the fifth and final category of ministry that God calls all of us to serve as his ministers, and that is the ministry to the poor. The ministry to the poor. Now, if you've been with us at NCF for a few years now, you would know that this is a recurring theme that I preach on over and over. If you've been to this church for quite a while, you know that this is a recurring theme that this pulpit talks about. Therefore, I want to kind of go at it from a different angle by specifically talking about a particular relevant topic that I think we need to consider in light of this idea of what it means of serving to poor. And specifically, I want to talk about the issue of generosity. I want to talk to you guys today about generosity, specifically about what genuine generosity looks like. And the reason why I want to focus so much on this topic is because we live in a day and age where it's kind of hip to be generous. It's kind of cool to be generous. It's kind of trendy to be generous. You know, in this day and age, we don't really need to convince the world that we should be generous people. In fact, the world almost goes out of its way to be generous to a point where they think that if you're not generous, you're not hip, you're not cool, you're not trendy. Right? Just pick up the latest edition of some flashy magazine and you read about some A-list celebrity going to Africa, you know, starting a school, you know, starting an orphanage, maybe even adopting a bunch of orphans. Or turn on the TV and you see Bono, Brad, and I don't know, P. Diddy talking about this campaign that they want you to join so that if you join, you can help alleviate global poverty. You know, we live in a city where attending charities and balls and fundraisers that have $30,000 plates distinguishes you as someone who is set apart in this city. You become a socialite. You become part of the elite. Our culture is one where being generous is not only a way of being kind, but it's also a pathway of being hip, of being trendy, of being cool. And according to a USA Today article entitled The New Face of Generosity, or excuse me, The New Face of Giving, it seems like everyone especially the younger generation, really wants to jump on this bandwagon of using generosity as a way of being hip and relevant today. Listen to what this article says. Quote, the United States long has been a nation of givers, but a new generation is transforming the way we do good. Millennials and Generation Xers, especially those 20s and 30-something starting careers, are finding ways to help others and prompting big changes in the way charities raise money. Last year, donations from people of all ages and wallet sizes exceeded $300 billion for the first time, according to the Giving USA Foundation, which tracks philanthropy. Now, it seems we're living in a time and age where everyone wants to give, everyone wants to be generous because of the fact that it's attached to this cultural ideal of being hip, of being relevant, of being cool. And the question that I have for you this morning, what are we to make of this? What are we to make of this idea that people are using generosity as a way to get them noticed, kind of like the way that people use Facebook today? Well, on the one hand, you could argue, well, it's a good thing. It's a good thing for people to be more generous. It's a good thing that people go out of the way to really use giving. I mean, so what if they're kind of using it as a way to take notice of themselves, to have the spotlight on them? I mean, isn't generosity in and of itself a good thing? Well, yes, it is. Generosity in and of itself is a good thing. But let me ask you, the motive behind it, the reason why these people aren't generous, is that a good thing? You know, we live in a time and age where generosity is not only a cultural value, but you know what else is a cultural value? authenticity, being real, 
right? We as a culture value being real. We hate being fake. We don't like being called out on being a poser. And yet it seems like so many people today are just simply using the panorama, the language of generosity as a way just to take notice of themselves. And because none of us in here want to be fake, the question is, how do we make sure that we truly are generous without that baggage of being fake? Well, that's what I want to talk about today. Because as Christians, God calls us not simply to be generous, but to be genuinely generous. To where we use generosity not as a way to put a spotlight on ourselves, but as a way to bring glory to God. So that's what I want to talk about today in terms of generosity. I want to talk about what does it mean to be genuinely generous as God's people. And so as we look at our text, the text will tell us three characteristics, three marks as how you can tell that you are genuinely generous. Mark number one, genuine generosity is painful. Genuine generosity is painful. Number two, genuine generosity is habitual. And finally, genuine generosity is reactionary. The Bible says genuine generosity has these three characteristics. It's painful, it's habitual, and it's reactionary. Okay, let's jump right in. First, genuine generosity is painful. Starting in verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes this. And now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches out of their most severe trial, their overflowing joy, and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, in order to understand what Paul is saying in these verses, you have to know a little bit of background as to what Paul is writing to as he's penning this letter. You see, there was a severe famine going on in Judea, okay? There was a severe famine going on in Judea, which meant a lot of the Jewish Christians, particularly the Christians in the Jerusalem church, they were undergoing severe financial strain to where many of them were homeless, many of them were starving. And one of the things that Paul did as part of his ministry is he went around to all the different churches that he started in his various missionary journeys, and he petitioned, he fundraised from all the different churches to share some of their resources, to share some of their wealth as a way to help alleviating the problems in Jerusalem. He said basically to all his various churches, look guys, your brothers and sisters in Jerusalem, they're struggling, they're poor, they're hungry, they're homeless. Could you share a little bit out of your abundance to help alleviate some of the struggles going on over there? And that's what's going on here in our verse. That is what Paul is doing. He's writing these words to say, hey, can you share a little bit of your resources with the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem? But here's what you need to understand. This is not the first time that Paul is actually asking the Corinthians to do this thing because Uh, It says later on in verse 10 of this very chapter that he, over a year ago, actually petitioned the Corinthian church to help out the brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Now, what that tells us is these Christians, these Corinthian Christians that Paul is writing to, made a commitment, probably in the form of some sort of financial pledge, probably in the form of some campaign that Paul was doing, to where they promised, they promised that they would share some of their abundant resources to help alleviate their brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. But... There was a problem. As one New Testament scholar puts it, their generosity was, quote, slack and irregular. Slack and irregular. Because here it is a year later, and Paul has to follow up with them. Right? Hey, guys, you said over a year ago that you would have helped these guys, and yet I have to bring this topic up again. These Corinthians, for whatever reason, 
simply did not follow through on their promise, on their commitment to help share some of their resources to their struggling brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Now, perhaps there were many reasons to why these Corinthians didn't follow through, why they reneged on their promise to help share their abundant resources. We can only speculate. Maybe they had mounting bills to pay. Maybe an unexpected expense came up. Maybe they didn't get a raise in their salaries as they were expecting. Maybe the economy in Corinth just inflated abundantly, and now the living standards were so high, right? There are many possible reasons as to why these people didn't follow through. But whatever reasons that may have been, one thing is clear, according to Paul, those are not valid excuses. Why? Because of the people that he names in verse 1. You hear what he said? Who does he mention in verse 1? He names the Macedonians. The Macedonians. Who are the Macedonians? The Macedonians were part of the group of churches that Paul planted in his second missionary journey. And here's the thing about the Macedonians. They were not wealthy people. They were not advantaged people. They were not people who had abundant resources. In fact, according to most scholars, these guys suffered severe trials, severe financial strains. In fact, Paul confirms this when he says that many of them were living in, quote, extreme poverty. And yet, in spite of all of their financial hardship and out of all of their financial strain, what does Paul says that they were doing? They were richly generous, or as one translation puts it, they were overflowing with rich generosity. Here's the question. Why does Paul bring up the Macedonians as he's talking to the Corinthians? Because he is trying to teach the Corinthians, and he's trying to teach us a very profound biblical principle when it comes to generosity. And it goes like this. Real genuine generosity is painful. Let me say that again. Real, genuine generosity is painful. You see how it says in verse 3 that the Macedonians gave as, quote, as much as they were able and even beyond their ability? Do you know what that means? It means that these poor Macedonians not only gave what they could afford to give, but they went above and beyond what they could afford to give. In other words, they gave so richly, so generously, that it started affecting how they could live. It was such a painful burden to which they took on at the expense of them giving their resources to those who were less privileged than them. All right? That is what it means that these Macedonians were giving abundantly. They gave so much to where their giving actually hurt. It affected their financial lifestyle. And this kind of behavior is so foreign to us in America. Because when we give, we give not until it hurts. We give so long as it doesn't hurt, right? When I was a pastor in Seattle, one year we were sending uh, some of our members to go out for three months to Malawi, Africa for a missions trip. And so one of the things that I had to organize was a donations fun drive, right? And so basically we asked members of our church, hey guys, we're sending a team out to Malawi. Can you please donate some goods, some resources that we could give to our brothers and sisters in Africa, right? These are fellow Christians in Africa who became Christians under our missionary over there. And we asked, can you give some donations? Can you give some things for our brothers and sisters over there in Africa? And I was utterly shocked at some of the things that people donated. Do you know that one person donated used tea bags as part of her donation. I'm not joking. This is a real thing. This person donated a handful of used tea bags because they think, hey, I'm sure they like tea over there in Africa, so why don't I use these leftover tea bags and I'll give them over there. 
I'm not joking. That really happened. Now, of course, other people in our congregation at the time gave kind of the more traditional donations, like use shoes, use books, use clothing. And yet, even with those things that were considered more acceptable donations, I got myself thinking, is this really a good act of generosity? Is this really the kind of generosity that the scripture calls us to live out? Take a listen to what theologian Randy Alcorn says, because I think he really hits a nail on the head. He says this, giving sacrificially also means giving the best. If we have two blankets and someone needs one of them, sacrificial giving hands over the better of the two. Sadly, much of our giving is merely discarding. Donating secondhand goods to church rummage sales and benevolence organization is certainly better than throwing them away. But giving away something that we didn't want in the first place isn't giving, it's selective disposal. It's often done because we want a newer or better version. And that's so true, is it not? Let's be honest. When it comes to our generosity, we make sure that it's not going to be painful or disruptive to us and to our lifestyle. In other words, we are generous so long as it does not hinder our way of living right here, right now. And yet it's because the Macedonians did the very opposite that Paul commends them so much. Because the Macedonians didn't give their second best. They give their very best to their brothers and sisters who are struggling in Jerusalem in a much more difficult situation that they were in. You see, real genuine generosity from the Bible's perspective is one that is willing to share the burdens of the poor. The poor are truly burdened. They are under tremendous strain. And what the Bible calls us to do is to help alleviate that burden by taking on some of that burden ourselves. Listen to how Tim Keller puts it. He says this, quote, a poor man is a man walking with a burden a burden of discomfort and inconvenience. So when a Christian says, I can't afford to help the poor, he is really saying, if I help, it will cut into my style of living. In other words, some of the poor man's burden would slide over onto the helper. The helper would not be able to take the vacation he wants or buy the car he wants. Well, isn't that exactly what the Bible demands? If your giving to the needy does not burden you or cut into your lifestyle in any way, you must give more. Now, some of you are hearing this and you're probably like, what in the world is this guy saying to me? Does Pastor John actually expect me to give my wealth away to where I end up being homeless, to where I end up living on the streets? Interesting question. To answer that, let me go to my next point. Genuine generosity is habitual. Starting in verse 7, Paul says this. But just as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in your love for us, see that you also excel in this grace of giving. Now, in this verse, we see Paul describing the Corinthians in very positive terms, and rightly so, because if you knew anything about the Corinthian church, you would know that this was an impressive bunch of people, right? They were kind of the equivalent of the New Yorkers back in the day, right? The people who made up this church were an impressive group of people. They kind of carried this aura of excellence, and all the churches that Paul started and planted, in fact, all the other churches that he didn't even touch, were all admiring this church because it was filled with impressive people. These were people who filled the church with some profound, some very famous, noticeable spiritual gifts. Some of the members of this church were very prominent because they had such prominent talents and gifts like the gift of faith, which is a gift of leadership. Some of them had the gift of knowledge, which meant these were bright, intelligent people. They knew their doctrine. They knew their theology. These were some of the more relationally competent people. They were good at counseling people and building relationships and help people grieve through the process of life. 
These were a group of impressive Christians, but yet Paul further challenges them at the end of this verse by saying this, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. In other words, Paul is saying, you guys are great at a lot of things. You guys are excellent at a lot of things. But one thing you lack is that you are not excellent in being generous. Isn't that interesting? How many of us in here think about being excellent at giving? Many of us want to be excellent in terms of our physical bodies. Many of us want to be excellent in terms of our singing abilities, right, tragically. Some of us want to be excellent at our jobs. But do we ever consider the idea of being excellent in terms of being giving people, in terms of being generous people? You know, to excel at something means that you perform at a certain capacity that impresses other people. How many of us ever think about trying to be generous in such a way that we would actually want to impress anyone? And yet Paul tells us that when you strive to be excellent, when you strive to be excelling in the act of generosity, it's amazing. It's powerful. Why? Well, later on in chapter 9, Paul tells us, starting in verse 7, he says, Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. According to Paul, when God sees one of his beloved children excelling in the act of generosity, God is so blown away by it. He is so, he admires it so much. He loves it so much. You know what it's like? God looks at at generosity that's done well, like a sports fan watches Stephen Curry shooting a three-pointer flawlessly. It's like when he sees a foodie at a restaurant eating a steak that's perfectly cooked, perfectly marinated. It's like when a high-culture snob goes to the symphony and he witnesses a performance that is done excellently and he's so moved by it. That is how God is moved when he sees his people giving generously. He sees it with such admiration, with such applause, with such great love. And here's the thing you have to remember. In order to be excellent at anything, you have to get into the habit of practicing it. No great ball player, no great chef, no great musician becomes excellent overnight. It doesn't matter how much natural talent that they may have. Excellence only comes when there is the habit of practice. And that same principle applies when it comes to striving to be excellent in generosity. If you don't make it into a habit of being generous, you will find it impossible for you to ever become a genuine, generous person. And judging from the giving habits of most American Christians today, it's pretty clear that where we are way below average, we are not nowhere near towards excellence when it comes to this area of life that God calls us to be excellent in. According to a recent study in Christianity Today, A small minority of American Christians today give not 10% of their income. They give only 2.5%. That's the small minority. You know what the rest of the majority of American Christians give out of their income? Zero. And the study goes on to tell us that the more affluent Christians become, their giving goes down. The more money they make, the less generous they become. Now, Please don't misunderstand what I'm saying here with all this talk about generosity and wealth and affluence. I am not saying, and the Bible is certainly not saying, that it's wrong to be rich. It's not saying it's a sin to be affluent. No, far from it. If you look throughout the history of the church, and in fact, if you look at the stories of Scripture, we see many prominent people 
very good godly saints who are very, very wealthy. But with that in mind, listen to what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. He says, command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, not to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Notice, Paul does not say in this passage, how dare you be rich? He doesn't say it's a sin to be wealthy. But what he does say is, wealthy Christians, don't put your hope, don't put your identity, don't put your sense of significance in your wealth. No, your hope, your significance, and your identity should be in God. That's what he's saying, which means what? It means your wealth is not given to you by God primarily as a way to comfort yourself or to simply live a luxurious life or to indulge in this life. No. God gives some of us abundant wealth so we could be stewards of it in such a way that we can share those resources with those who are not as fortunate as us. So practically what that means is this. When your income gets bigger... Your generosity should be getting bigger. Not your TV, not your apartment, not your wardrobe. That is what he's saying. For a rich Christian not to excel in generosity, you know what that's like? It's like Stephen Curry never picking up a ball. It's like Emerald Lagasse never picking up a spatula. It's like Yo-Yo Ma never picking up a cello. It's the tragedy of untapped excellence. Can you imagine how much darker and grayer this world would be if some of the greatest people who excel in the great things that they do didn't do the things that they were meant to do? The world would be so much more miserable. How much more then when Christians who were designed to excel in generosity makes this world even more darker, more gray because of untapped excellence? Now, before I move on to my last point, I, don't, I do want to point out some implications that come out of this idea of being habitually generous. There are really two reasons why most American Christians today do not give generously and give habitually. Reason number one, most American Christians today do not get into the habit of giving generously because they don't have anything to give. And the reason why they don't have anything to give is because many American Christians live beyond their means. And what that basically means, they spend more on things than what they actually bring in through their work. So many Christians today are in severe credit card debt, severe mortgage debt, car debt, school debt. And they overindulge buying things they cannot even afford because they put it on credit, they put it on loan, they borrow money. And now they're not even in a position to even trying to give, even if they wanted to give, because they owe money to creditors. That's the first reason. The second reason why a lot of American Christians don't give is because they're dumb. And the reason why, sorry, they're foolish. That's a more pastoral way to put it. The reason why a lot of American Christians don't habitually give is because they're foolish. And what I mean by that is they're not wise on how they give. I've heard so many tragic stories of Christians giving all their wealth to some particular ministry, to some particular church plant, to some mission agency that ends up spending it all, going bankrupt, and now they are dependent. Right? 
The Bible says don't be unwise on how you give generously. Be wise. Listen to what Tim Keller says about that. He says, wisdom tells us that we must not give away our income so that we or our children become financial burdens to others in later years. We must not be generous in such a way that we or our families become liabilities to others. So here we see this need for balance, right? If we want to be habitually generous, how do we do that? How do we be habitually generous so that we're willing to take on a burden, but we don't end up becoming a burden to other people? How do we become habitually generous where we're willing to be burdened, but not in a way that we end up being a burden for others? Well, the answer to that question leads me to my final point. Genuine generosity is reactionary. Paul ends our passage with these words, starting in verse 8. I am not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Now notice, Paul says to the Corinthians this phrase, I am not commanding you, Corinthians. What does he mean by that? He simply means, guys, I am not going to use guilt I'm not going to use shame. I'm not going to use passive aggressiveness. I'm not going to use a mild threat to get you guys to do something that you don't want to do. You know, kind of like how our parents treat us sometimes, right? You know how your parents will sometimes use guilt or shame or passive aggressively use some sort of mild threat to get you to do something you want to do? Paul doesn't need to do that. He doesn't need to do that. And the reason why is because he has a more effective way of getting us to do something that we initially may not want to do to where we would definitely want to do with our whole heart. He does that by telling us the gospel. He says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor. The Bible makes it clear. The most important, the most precious, and the most valuable thing that God could have withheld from us is himself. Not money, not marriage, not abundant wealth, not a family, but himself. Let me say that again. The most important, most precious and valuable thing that God could have withheld from us is himself. And he had every right to do that because of our sins, but he doesn't. Instead, Paul shows the Corinthians and us the greatest act of generosity in the history of the world. God left his glorious throne and he became an unknown, unattractive, unpopular person to where he eventually died a humiliating death on the cross as our substitute so that he could take in our place the wrath of God so that we would be spared, so that we would have the greatest treasure in the world, him. That is what the gospel teaches us. And this act of generosity was painful for Jesus to give to us, right? But not only that, this act of generosity was truly gracious. Because no amount of works, no amount of righteousness, no amount of religious behavior could ever merit or earn this kind of generosity from God. It is pure grace. That's why we call it generous. God did All of this for us. Why? Because he loves us in Christ. The very person you can't live without, who also happens to be the very person you do not deserve, loves us graciously, generously, genuinely in Jesus Christ. And when you're captured by that love, you find balance. You get balance. Because think about it for a moment. If you know that the greatest treasure that you could ever have 
is secured for you in Jesus. To where you have the greatest valuable thing in all of reality. Why in the world would you overspend on anything? Why do people overspend? People overspend because they're convinced that the thing that they want to have, they need. They can't live without. And so let me risk going under debt to where I have people coming after me because I can get that. Because that's worth it. Right? That's so valuable. But if you have the gospel really embedded in your heart and you know that God is your greatest treasure, whatever you think that prior to that was worth going into debt for, you know it's not worth it because you have something greater. So you don't overspend. But furthermore, if you understand the gospel, that also means that the only reason why God loves you like this is not because of what you've done. It's not because of any act of generosity that you do, but only because of the generosity of Jesus. You know what that also means? It means you won't feel pressure. You won't feel guilt. You won't be naively duped into giving all your money away to where you end up becoming a burden to others. You see, it's only in the gospel that you find that right balance. The gospel makes sure that you see that you have your greatest treasure in Christ so you don't need to spend money that you don't have. The gospel also teaches us that you don't deserve any of the grace that God gives you, but yet it's truly by all grace and therefore you don't have to try to earn this favor of grace. So you don't feel any guilt or pressure to give beyond what you can as a way of meriting or earning the favor of God. You see, the gospel is the only means to which we can give genuinely, generously, and habitually. So here is my challenge to you, NCF. Are you giving generously? For some of you, it might simply be, are you giving at all? But I want to ask you, are you giving generously? Are you giving genuinely? If you're not, the takeaway is not, oh, I feel so bad, I feel so guilty, I should just force myself to give. No, my challenge to you is look back to that gospel. Look back to the genuine, generous act of God's love for you in Jesus. Because then and only then will you give in the manner that is truly pleasing to God. Then and only then will you give generously in such a way that God will look upon you like the way a sports fan looks at Stephen Curry. Like the way a foodie looks at a beautiful steak. God will look upon your generosity with excellence. And he will take great delight in you. And this world will be so much better. Because just like with any excellence that comes into this world that we get to witness, our excellence that we give in the form of generosity will make this world so much more hopeful because it will point them to the one who is the most generous of all. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that as we come before you, that we would be truly honest with ourselves, that we would truly be self-reflective. Father, many of us have many problems. But for most of us, one of those problems is not abundance. Father, whatever issues and struggles that we may have as a congregation, we thank you that one of those struggles for most of us is not not having enough. Father, many of us have enough and then some. Father, according to the world standards, we have much more than any other period of life that even some of the richest monarchs on the earth have never experienced. And so, Father, we need to be reminded of this responsibility of stewardship that you call us to have. Lord, we need to strive for excellence, not only in holiness, 
not only in relational competence, not only in wisdom, but also in generosity, in our outward compassion. God, would you enable us by your grace to be the men and women of excellence that you call us to be so that this world would take greater delight in you and see how wonderful you truly are. Father, some of us in here need to be challenged to give. Some of us need to be wiser in terms of how we give. Help us to find that balance by always looking to you, Jesus Christ, and the greatest act of generosity that you've given to us. For we pray all these things in your holy name. Amen. We're now going to give the Lord his tithes and our offerings, thereby giving you the opportunity to be generous. But to our non-members, our visitors, we don't expect you to give. But to our members, let's give to God what is rightfully his. Let's give to God his tithes and our offerings.